When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast channel on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Gessler, and we're joined today by Professor Rob Jenkins, who's going to share with us from his articles about what to expect at a job interview and what we should not do. Welcome to the show, Professor Jenkins. Thank you very much, Christina. I really appreciate your having me on. I appreciate the opportunity. I am so glad that you're here and you get to give us this hidden curriculum about job interviews. I know there's a wide range of how a job interview may be handled by a potential academic employer. But hearing from your expertise and just getting a sense of what to expect is going to be really comforting for all of us. But before we dive into that, will you please tell us about yourself? Yes, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I want to make sure that people understand up front that I am talking specifically about and that my area of expertise is interviewing at two-year colleges. Uh, So I have been a professor at uh, a series of two-year colleges, community colleges, whatever people want to call them, for I guess I'm going on my 37th year. Uh, And I also spent about 20 years as an administrator of one kind or another, a department chair, an academic dean, program director. Um, So, uh, you know, that's that's what I know about. And I, I do realize and understand that the process of applying and interviewing at two-year colleges is different from that of applying and interviewing at four-year schools, especially research universities. But what I've found as I've talked to people, and, and I do travel around the country quite a bit, um, I've, I've given talks and workshops on two-year college careers at probably, oh gosh, uh, 30 different institutions, uh, research institutions around the country talking to their graduate students. And what I've learned is that their professors do an excellent job of preparing them for the four-year college job search because that's what they did, the, the professors, I mean. That's, that's the job search that they went through. And so they, did, they do a good job of preparing their students for that. But very often, nobody on campus knows anything at all about applying or interviewing at a two-year college. So that's the that's the knowledge gap that I'm trying to close there. And, you know, the issue is, and I, I tell, I tell grad students this all the time. Um, I understand that a lot of people don't really, how do I say this exactly? Um, there aren't many people who go to graduate school because they want to teach at a community college. You know, everybody goes to graduate school. I say everybody, but I mean, of course that's not true, but you know what I mean? Uh, we go to grad school because, you know, we, we want to be an endowed chair at Harvard and, and we, we envision ourselves, you know, sitting in our ivory tower and, uh, you know, that's, that's sort of what everybody dreams of. Um, but a, a couple of things happen along the way. One is that, um, that many of us discover as we get into our graduate studies, uh, especially when we become teaching assistants, 
some of us discover that we really, really like the teaching part better than the research part. And uh, community colleges are a great place if you love to teach. And the other thing we discover is, if we didn't know it going in, is that the job market is really, really bad. Uh, I'm sorry if that's bad news for, for your listeners, if people didn't already know that. Uh, and community colleges make up about a third of the total higher ed job market nationwide. Uh, they offer about a third of the faculty jobs nationwide. And so anybody who says to themselves, well, I'll never teach at a community college has just sort of lopped off a third of the potential job market, uh, it, you know, in one fell swoop. And I, that doesn't seem to me like a good job search strategy, but, you know, people are, are going to do what they want to do. So anyway, I, I say all that to, to say that that's where my expertise lies and to kind of, kind of give a plug for that particular thing. But uh, you asked about my background. I've, I've worked at a series of two-year colleges in, in several states. I've moved around a little bit. Um, I now teach at Perimeter College of Georgia State University, which is kind of a, an interesting development. Maybe we can talk more about this later. Um, Perimeter College was a large multi-campus urban, suburban community college in the Atlanta metro area. And about, I guess it's been six or seven years ago now, uh, we became part of Georgia State University, which is a, a large downtown, you know, urban uh, research university. And basically, the perimeter campuses have maintained their their original um, function as two-year campuses. And the idea, of course, is for us to funnel students downtown. And many of our students do stay with Georgia State and, and go downtown after their two years with us, but they also transfer to University of Georgia, Kennesaw State, and, and other state universities. So it's, it's kind of an interesting dynamic. It's, it's like I work at a two-year college still, and that much is very familiar to me, but I'm having a lot of interactions now with my colleagues at the, uh, at the university level. And so that, that's kind of a new thing for me, but I, I, think, I think it's been very instructive. Um, as you mentioned, I've been writing an advice column for the Chronicle of Higher Education for about 20 years now. I don't contribute quite as much as I used to because I have a lot of other things going on. But for about, uh, oh gosh, eight or 10 years, I was writing pretty much monthly for their uh, two-year track column, mostly about two-year college issues. And so I've, I've written, uh, I don't know how many, um, probably a couple of hundred columns about two-year colleges, about applying, about, um, uh, you know, writing a, a um, a letter or, you know, sending your CV, um, you know, interviewing everything that goes into the job search process. And, and as you mentioned, I did collect these a few years ago into a book. So you can find them more or less in, in one place. The book is called building a career at America's community colleges. Uh, but you can also just go on the Chronicle and surf around, type in my name, Rob Jenkins in the search bar. And, uh, most of these will, you know, they're still, archive, they'll, they'll still pop up. Um, so, I, you know, I, I kind of made it a, um, I don't, I don't want to say life's mission. That's probably an exaggeration because I have other things going on. I have, uh, my wife and I raised four children and now we have six going on seven grandchildren. Um, but being in administration and serving on and chairing numerous search committees, uh, I began to see that our applicant pool, it, it's not that the applicant pool wasn't good. The people were good. They just had no idea, and I mean no idea, how to apply, how to present themselves, how to interview at a two-year college. And clearly, there was no one out there telling them how to do this. And, you know, it, it, it didn't help them, obviously, didn't help them land a job. Uh, but it also wasn't good for us on the search committee end because we had to try to weed through stuff. And, and it, it made everything so much more difficult than it really needed to be. And so I contacted the Chronicle back in, oh, I guess it was around 2003 and said, hey, I'm interested in writing a series of articles for people that are you know, that might be interested in applying at two-year colleges, would, would you be interested in something like that? And they said, yes, you know, 
send them on. So I, I did, I sent them several pieces and they published them. And, and over the years, you know, like I said, I got to be more and more of a regular contributor. And then I started getting invitations to come to campuses and give workshops for uh, graduate students. And so I do that probably on average two or three times a year, maybe. I appreciate you sharing all that. I have so many thoughts. I'm going to just jump in. Um, out in California, where I'm from, the community college system is essential to the four-year system. The four-year colleges are overburdened. They may not enjoy me saying that, but anybody who's has familiarity with them knows that that's true. They don't have enough housing. There can be wait lists for crucial classes that you need for your pre And the community college system has... Um, a direct relationship. And so if you want to transfer into the four-year system, when you sign up for the two-year college, you let them know and they get you completely ready to go ahead and make that transfer. Um, and it can be a wonderful route for people who feel also that they know they want to go to this particular four-year school, but they don't feel they have quite the competitive transcript or other factors that may push them into a direct admission. And um, it's interesting how in different parts of the country, there's different perceptions of what a community college is because I grew up with this positive perception because so many people I know, it was their route through school and they, they think very positively of that two years at community college because like you said, it's so teaching intensive that by the time they were done with their two years there and they went to the very large, because the UC system, they're very large schools, um, they felt they had the skills and confidence they needed to go ahead and finish their degree. Yes, two-year colleges absolutely excel at that and there have been numerous studies done over the years that show that that students who succeed at the community college level um, are very likely to succeed at the four-year level. Um, you know, part of it is the, um, uh, you know, what does it say in, in the Old Testament? A prophet isn't, uh, doesn't get any respect in his own country, something like that. I'm, I'm mangling that. But uh, community colleges are local by their very nature. They're in the community. And so, you know, 17, 18 year old kids, they want to, they want to go off to school and, you know, local regional universities uh, deal with a lot of the same thing. Um, you know, perfect example here in the Atlanta Metro area, we have Kennesaw state university, which is really a large and thriving university in the Atlanta suburb of Marietta. But, um, and my wife grew up in Marietta, uh, but you know, the kids there, oh, they don't want to go to Kennesaw state because it's local. Um, they want to go off someplace. And honestly, there might not be a better place for them. Um, and it's the same with community colleges because they're right there in the community and kids want to go away. Um, but that, speaking as a parent, that isn't always the best thing for kids. And I, I, I tell parents this all the time, you know, our, especially as our, our kids are older now, but especially as our kids were growing up and our peer group was parents of of younger children or teenagers in high school, um, you know, there, there are really two adjustments that young people have to make when they quote unquote, go off to college. Uh, they have to adjust to the academic rigor of college, which is very different from high school. And it, it doesn't really have any, it, it doesn't have as much to do with the amount of work as it does with the type of work. I mean, when my kids were in high school, they were in, you know, AP classes and they were, they were just loaded up with work but it wasn't typically the same kind of intellectual rigor that, that you would have in college. Um, I'll, I'll tell you a little story real quick that illustrates my point. Um, my daughter was doing dual enrollment at the quote-unquote local community college, which happened to be where I taught. And we can talk more about dual enrollment here in a little bit if you like. But she was a high school senior, you know, had a Three eight three nine GPA, high SAT scores, had taken all these AP classes. And I, I came home one afternoon and she was sitting at the, at the dining room table working on something. And I could tell that she was frustrated. I said, uh, what are you doing, sweetheart? She said, I'm working on a paper for my political science class. This, this was her college level political science class at the community college. I said, well, okay. I mean, you know, you're, you're a good writer. What, what's the issue? She said, well, the professor wants us to write about which has more power, the House or the Senate. 
I said, okay, I'm still not quite understanding why you're so flummoxed. She said, well, I don't know which has more power. I said, well, sweetheart, you're not supposed to know. You're supposed to read the material, do some research on your own, think about it deeply, and then decide what you think and make an argument for it. And and she looked at me with this look of absolute surprise on her face. She said, oh, no one's ever asked me what I thought before. So, you know, that's, that's the difference in, the, in what we do in college as compared to what they mostly do at, at the high school level. So there's that adjustment that students have to make to the intellectual rigor. But they also have to make the social adjustment if they're going off someplace, moving into a dormitory or whatever, of being away from home, being independent, being away from their parents' influence. Frankly, let's be honest, being able to do whatever they want. I mean, nobody is there getting them out of bed in the morning like mom and dad did when they were in high school. Um, they can stay up half the night. Uh, no one's saying, hey, did you get your homework done? And as we know very well, this can be a tough adjustment for a lot of kids. A, a lot of them fail that first year, not because they're not smart enough or capable enough, just because they can't handle the independence. Uh, I've had so many students over the years who wouldn't have even considered a community college coming out of high school because, you know, they were going to UGA and UGA is a great school. Don't, don't get me wrong, but uh, they wouldn't even have considered coming to perimeter college. And then a year later, there they are sitting in my classroom because they went off to UGA and hung out all night and, and partied with their friends and flunked out. And now they're back at the community college. Uh, you know, it might not be, it certainly that isn't most students, but it's a, it's, a large enough percentage of students to be significant. Obviously, those students would have been better off starting at the community college to begin with. So there are academic advantages, there are social advantages, there are financial advantages. Here in Georgia, two-year colleges cost, oh, half or even a third of what the four-year schools cost. Because I say that because, you know, the four-year schools have various price ranges depending on the size and the, the, the stature and so forth. But, um, typically about half of what it costs to go to a four-year school, and you can live at home for a year or two. And as we know, you get uh, a high-quality education, um, in typically small classes, professors who know your names, professors who are, uh, in, in most cases, very experienced professors. I, you know, when I, was, um, when I was an undergraduate at a university, um, I probably didn't see a full professor for, you know, a year and a half, at least. Most of the people who taught my entry-level classes were graduate students. And that's not knocking them or knocking that system. I got a lot of good teaching experiences as a graduate student. But at a community college, you're, you're likely to have somebody that's been teaching for 15, 20, even, even 30 years or more, and, and who has dedicated their lives to the craft of teaching. And I, I think that makes a difference. So I guess my, my message is that students and parents who overlook the two-year college system as an option are, uh, are missing out on something that would potentially be very advantageous to them. Just like graduate students who overlook community colleges as a potential you know, career track are missing out on something. There's so much hidden curriculum there that you shared. And one thing that I was picking up that you're saying is about the role of failure for young people. And I think it's actually fairly normal. Um, my dad is someone who went way off to college. He, he shared this story, so um, I have his permission to share it. He's passed away, but he shared it uh, quite a bit. He went off to college far from home, and he just like you said, he was wild, right? And um, he came home and he didn't go to a two-year. He went to a four-year. He went to the state school, um, which at that time was quite affordable. That's a you know dramatic change um, from his generation to mine. Um, and he, for the rest of his life, credited that opportunity to go out and mess up with helping him for the rest of his life, that he was a believer that it was okay to fail 
if you learn from it and you failed with some safety nets, right? He didn't ruin his life. Um, he did end his time at that school, um, but that didn't ruin his life. And he was very clear about the huge value of taking a, a big risk if you could afford to and learning as much as you could from it instead of like, you know, being ashamed of it or hiding it. And um, it was a great source of his compassion in life for people's choices. Um, and, and thinking about the importance of community college, not as a place for people who haven't been able to make it somewhere else, because I don't believe that's what they're there for, but as a chance to experiment with a lot of different types of classes without the financial pressure to pick one thing and succeed at it. You can really use some time at community college to figure out who you are, how you learn, what you want to learn, and change your idea of what your major is going to be, you know, four or five times, which can be a really healthy part of that age group's development. Yes, absolutely. And, and you know, I, I, I will mildly disagree on one point. I, I think we are there in part for people who haven't succeeded elsewhere. Um, it's maybe not the main thing that we do, but it's one of the things that we do. Uh, and, and, and it, and in, in many cases, we're talking about people who, um, who had a bad experience 15 or 20 years ago, or who, um, you know, women who got, got married and, and had a baby young and had to drop out of college or, um, guys who, you know, went for a semester and it just quote unquote, wasn't for them. And so they went and got a job and, and now 15, 20 years later, they're coming back to college and, um, and it's, it's really, it's, it's one of my favorite things about teaching at a two-year college, to be honest with you. It's, it's one of my absolute favorite things. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I've often said that, um, that community colleges are, are really sort of, um, America's contribution to higher ed. I mean, as you know, for the most part, our system of higher ed is derived from the European system. I mean, we just sort of borrowed the university system from them. But community colleges are something uniquely American. Uh, and as, as you said, they provide so many opportunities. Uh, you know, another thing that we tend to do differently in this country as opposed to a lot of other developed nations, is um, we don't we don't pigeonhole students early on. Um, in in a lot of developed countries, by you know by the time you're in eighth grade, you're either on the college track, the university track, or you're on the technical track. I mean, they can make that determination that early. And you know we. We do a little bit of that with, um, you know, AP classes and so forth. But just because you didn't do AP in high school, just because you didn't do well in high school. I mean, my my brother didn't do well in high school. He's one of the smartest people I know. He just wasn't interested. He didn't care. And um, he went off and joined the Army and found something that he was really interested in and passionate about while he was in the Army. And... Uh, you know, got a four-year degree, got a master's degree, and, you know, he he makes way more money than I do now. Um, and, it, you know, in, in, a, in a lot of systems, that, that sort of thing wouldn't be possible. But community colleges are one of the things that make that possible. Um, you know, I've had lots of students, as I said, who uh, maybe coming out of high school, they weren't interested, but 10, 15, 20 years later, they come back. Maybe, maybe the only reason they're coming back is because they want to take a class. Maybe their employer says, hey, you need to go take a class in such and such and brush up your skills. And they come back and they discover that they just love learning. And I've had students in their 30s and 40s who went on and got PhDs because, and these, these were people who had no interest in college coming out of high school. Um, I've also had kids who are there only because their parents are making them. You know, there's that there's that guy sitting in the back of the room with his hat on sideways with, you know, kind of slouched in the chair with his arms folded across his chest and his body language is I do not want to be here because his dad said to him, OK, son, you can either get a job or you can go down to the and enroll at the local community college. And the job thing didn't sound too good to him. So he enrolled in school. and He doesn't want to be there. But then one day he's walking across the campus of this large 
comprehensive community college. And he, he, he sees this, this building, uh, you know, the, the auto mechanics building. And he's like, wait, what they have, they do auto mechanics here. And next thing you know, he's figured out what he wants to do in life. I, I had a student in exactly that situation a few years ago. I still hear from him occasionally. Last I heard, he was a mechanic on um, a NASCAR racing team. So, you know, students can come. Uh, perhaps I should pause right here and and specify that there are different types of two-year colleges. Okay, there are two-year colleges that focus more on the technical side where you go for a year or two and get an associate's degree or a certificate in a technical field. There are two-year colleges that focus more on the transfer side where their main purpose is to help funnel students into the university system in whatever state um, they are. And, and then there are what we call comprehensive community colleges, and that is still the most common model across the country where you have both of those functions on the same campus. So students can come there because they think they want to get a technical degree, and then they discover that they love literature or sociology or whatever it might be, and and end up going on to getting a bachelor's degree and, and maybe even beyond that. Or they can come there just because mom and dad are making them go to school, and they can discover some technical field that they're really passionate about and that they can make a good living at. Um, and so that, you know, I think that's, like I said, that's kind of our unique contribution to higher ed. And I think that's part of the great value that community colleges provide. And from a teaching standpoint, that can be a tremendous challenge because sitting there in your classroom, you've got kids with, you know, 1400 SATs who could have gone to a pretty good university, but maybe their family didn't have the money or, they just wanted to stay home for a year and work part-time and save some money, or for whatever reason, they're there in my class. And we get a fair number of those. And then you've got the kid that just barely made it through high school, doesn't, doesn't know what he wants to do. And then you've got the the 40-year-old who dropped out 20 years ago and now is coming back. And all of those people are, are there together in my classroom, and I've got to figure out ways to reach all of them at the same time. And, and that can be a real challenge, but it's also a, it's also my favorite thing about teaching at a two-year college uh, because it adds such rich diversity and, and not just diversity in the way that we typically think of it in terms of, of race and gender and so forth, although that too, obviously, but uh, diversity of experience, um, age diversity, uh, just layers upon layers uh, that you find in a community college classroom that you typically don't find at a big four-year university, maybe at some regional colleges, but um, definitely at community colleges. And these are the things you want people to know about before they show up for the job interview. And you want them to know about the specific community college where they're going to be interviewing. You're aware that they're probably going to have their applications in it a dozen places and to be really aware of the population that the particular community college you're interviewing at at that moment serves. In the job interviews, what is your advice about how you address uh, the teaching philosophy you have for such a breadth of student experience in a single classroom? Well, obviously it helps if you have some experience, even if that experience is just uh, as a graduate teaching assistant, um, I do advise people as much as possible. And I know that some of their graduate programs really frown on this and some of them don't allow it at all. But um, I, I do encourage graduate students to maybe uh, adjunct at a local community college while they're finishing up their degree so they can get some of that firsthand experience. Um, because it, there's really no substitute for it, to be honest with you, to to say, you know, I've been in this situation, I've done this, here's specifically what I've done, here are some of the, the strategies that I've used. Um, but if you're not able to get that kind of experience, and, and many people aren't, then, uh, you know, I think the next best thing, as you say, is to, to research that institution, um, to try to get a feel for the student body there, 
um, to do some research on teaching and learning on strategies that other people have used that have been successful and, you know, uh, think about what your own professors have done as you've come through school, uh, the, the things that you have really liked and enjoyed and uh, the things that you wish to emulate. And it's probably a good idea because to your point, you are going to get that question. It, it may be framed in a variety of different ways, but you are going to get that the question about how how do you teach a diverse group of students? Um, so it's good to have an answer to that framed beforehand. And if you don't have a ton of experience, then the next best thing is to do some research and to uh, to sort of plot out your answer and be able to tell. If you can't tell what you have done, at least you can tell what you would do. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. You tell us in the articles that Ruby asked questions about our our approach to diversity, to using technology, to classroom management, and that answers need to be practical and not just theoretical. And when we're answering the questions, you want us to avoid saviorism. Do people really get grandiose about why they're taking the job, that they're saviors? (laughs) Uh, Well, you know, people can get grandiose about a lot of things, can't they? Um, Yes, you know, I, I, I think it's fine to have a passion for this work. And in fact, I think it's good. Uh, and, and probably the more that passion comes through, the better, right up to the point where it seems like you're saying, oh, be, you know, because I went to big, you know, state university and, and I, uh, you know, all these poor community college kids who didn't have the advantages I had, I'm, I'm here to, you know, lift them out of poverty and ignorance. Uh, well, you know, you, you are, you are there to lift them out of ignorance. That's what college professors do. And, and some of them are in poverty and, and in a very real sense, you can help save them, uh, or at least make their lives a whole lot better by introducing them to the joy and the value of learning and helping them further their academic and career and, and, you know, professional and personal goals, um, but, you know, I have sat in interviews where, and, and, and honestly, the attitude isn't so much that I'm here to save your students. The attitude that bothers me is I'm here to save your college because I attended fill-in-the-blank university. And so, you know, all, all of you rubes, um, you know, don't really know what you're doing. And, uh, you know, I, I'm here to, to lift this entire department. Obviously, human nature, people aren't going to appreciate that kind of approach. But you, you might be surprised at how often that comes through. Um, I, I think for, as you say, people that we interview have typically applied at a lot of places. And usually that means both two and four-year schools. Um, there are a handful of people for whom their their career goal is to teach at a two-year college, but most people coming out of graduate school would prefer to teach at a four-year college. Now, they might be wrong about that. But what I mean by that is they might find that they enjoy the two-year college a whole lot more than they enjoyed the four-year college, but, but they don't know that yet. Um, you know, one of the questions I get asked a lot when I give these workshops is, can you use a two-year college as kind of a stepping stone? 
you know, if you don't get that job at the research university right out of grad school, which nowadays hardly anybody does, right? Stati- uh, statistically, um, can you can you go to a two year college and then and then start applying at research universities and sort of you know parlay your experience into a quote unquote higher level teaching job? Well, you know, first of all, I don't know that I appreciate that characterization of of higher level, but I but I I get what they're saying. Um, but the, the simple answer. The simple answer is um, no, probably not. You probably cannot use the two-year college as a stepping stone because people get pigeonholed. You know, th- this is part of human nature, and it's true in academia as it is, I think, in in just about any other profession. I mean, can you uh, can you hang a shingle if you're a lawyer? Can you hang a shingle in your uh, you know downtown in your old hometown and do that for two or three years and then start applying to uh, New York law firms? Well, no, they're not going to hire you, even if you're brilliant because you've been pigeonholed. Uh, and I think the same thing applies here. Um, but it's also true that very few people who come to us, whether that was their career goal or whether they just took the job because it was the one offered to them, um, very few end up looking for anything else because they like it at the two-year college level. There, there are lots of things to recommend it. It's, it, it's a, it's a great life. It's a, it, if, if you, uh, if you like students and some of our colleagues don't like students, let's, you know, let's acknowledge that. But if you like students and you like teaching and you want to impact people's lives, there's really no, no better place to be. in in my opinion, uh, I've, I've known, I'll put it another way. I've known very few people over the years who have left and gone to a four-year school. Very few. And that's partly because the opportunities really weren't there. Um, and and by the way, the ones who did, all but one of them went to a small liberal arts college, which also has a teaching mission. I've only, I only know one person who's gone from a two-year college to a research institution, and she was... Uh, uh, an avid researcher and prolific writer with a very aggressive research agenda the whole time she was teaching for us. And she did all of that on her own time, but she managed to publish a lot in her field. And she parlayed that into a research job because that's what she really wanted to do. And, and, you know, good for her, more power to her, but that's hard because we typically teach five classes a semester and it's hard to find time to do that. But also most people don't want to, they like what we do and, and they tend to stick with it. So when we see that attitude in an interview of, you know, we understand as a search committee, we understand that we aren't necessarily your first choice. Okay. But you don't have to act like it. And you, you know, you don't have to act like you'd be doing us a favor if you took a job here. And you would think that people don't act that way because, you know, maybe they were well brought up and their parents taught them not to behave that way. But you would be surprised at how many applicants we get who come in with that sort of, that sort of arrogance. Um, and obviously it doesn't do their candidacy any good. That just, I have so many thoughts of, one of the things that you tell us in the in your articles is that the teaching load is a five five, and that we should just know that before we come for the interview and not seem shocked. I think for people who've gone through um, the four year system into grad school, they're imagining it's five separate classes. So you're teaching ten totally different classes over the course of the year, and their head is kind of exploding. In the article, you let us know that it's not necessarily that you're going to be teaching 10 completely different classes, but that you may be teaching multiple sections of the same subject. So can when, it's a, when you say it's a 5-5, five, five, could you help us have a realistic idea from your point of view before we go into the interview what a 5-5 five, five looks like? Sure. Uh, that That's a really good question. You have to remember at a community college, we only offer the first two years, right? So we just offer introductory courses, whether it's sociology or psychology or, uh, 
history or mathematics or English or, or whatever it might be. Um, there, in a given discipline, there aren't a lot of courses to teach. Okay. Um, so you're not going to be teaching five different courses. If you're a history professor, you might be teaching, uh, you know, uh, three, three sections of American history and two sections of Western history or, or something like that. Um, I typically, I'm, I'm an English professor. Uh, we offer English 1101, which is the, the entry-level writing course, English 1102, which is the follow-up to that. And um, we do have several literature courses, uh, World Lit, uh, English Lit, and American Lit, and, and I teach American Lit. So in a typical semester, uh, in the fall, when everybody's taking the entry-level, I'll probably teach three, three sections of English 1101, maybe one section of 1102 for students who didn't take it the preceding spring or who took 1101 in the summer. And then I'll teach an American lit. So I've, I've got three preps. Um, you know, the upside of that obviously is I, I don't have to spend as much time prepping because, you know, three, three of my courses are the same. The downside is it, you know, it can feel a little repetitive. Like you're saying the same thing over and over again, especially if you have, you know, if I have two sections of 1101 back to back, and, and this happens to me sometimes. I'll be teaching two sections of, of the same course in the same room. And, you know, sometimes I change rooms, but sometimes I don't. It just depends on scheduling. So I'm teaching two sections of the same course back to back in the same room. And I get halfway through the second period. And I honestly don't remember what I said to these students as opposed to what I said to my other students, you know, an hour ago. So um, that's, you know, that's kind of the downside. But but I, I think it's outweighed by the fact that, no, you're not going to have to do 10 preps. Now, I, I do know people, um, for example, I have a good friend who teaches political science. We only offer two political science courses. One is an introductory level political science that pretty much everybody has to take. It's part of the core curriculum. And the other is a course for majors, like a like a second level course for people who want to go into political science as a major. Um, hardly anybody takes that. It, it's only offered maybe once a year at best, once every other year. Um, and so my friend ends up teaching five sections of political science, you know, 1101 or whatever the designation is. And so he's teaching this, you know, three on Monday, Wednesday and two on Tuesday and Thursday. Uh, but, but he loves it, and he um, he's he's an excellent teacher. The students absolutely love him, and uh, you know he's figured out ways over the years to make it really interesting and engaging for the students. and And he you know he updates it constantly because politics are changing constantly. He really has a lot of fun during a, during an election year. Uh, but you know that I mean that can be a downside, and it's something that you want to think about going in. Is is that something? Can you see yourself teaching? five sections of the same course semester after semester for, for 30 years, uh, because that might be the case, or you might have two courses and you teach three sections of one and two of the other semester after semester for 30 years. It, it, it's something to think about. One of the things you mentioned is that there's not going to be the burden on us to publish or perish, to maintain a course of original research in summers and over school breaks until we're exhausted. For a lot of students, that might be a huge relief to hear because they're trying to finish their dissertation and they're thinking, I'm burned out now. How do I go into a career that's going to keep this level of pressure on me? And at the community college, you're not going to get fired because you didn't publish an exciting article in a top journal. No, that's absolutely true. Um, I mean, typically two-year colleges encourage that sort of thing. I mean, they, uh, you know, you would, you would be applauded for it. Let's put it that way. Um, but first of all, they're not going to give you any resources to do it. They're not going to give you time off to do it. You, you don't have a research assistant. So you're doing it pretty much entirely on your own. Also, at the community college level, and you know, I, I should acknowledge that I'm speaking of two-year colleges nationwide as if they're monolithic. And, and of course, that isn't true. They all, they all differ in a variety of ways. But generally speaking, community colleges evaluate their professors in three areas, um, 
teaching, which is the largest and most important by far, um, service, which includes serving on committees. And, and there, are, there are a lot of those curriculum committees, textbook committees, and so forth. And everybody takes their turn with those. And then what we call professional development, which can certainly include publishing. And we, we have people who do that. Um, but it also includes attending conferences, presenting at conferences, um, going to uh, trainings that are hosted by our teaching and learning center, uh, maybe maybe doing you know maybe conducting one of those trainings or doing a brown bag for your colleagues. Um, any of those things would would count as professional development. The the other thing I'll say about publishing is the the student you described who's you know, finishing up her dissertation and she's looking at another seven years of, of that level of work. It's not just the level of work. She's going to be writing about the same narrow topic for at least the next seven years until she gets tenure. You know, assuming she's fortunate enough to get a tenure track position, whatever little niche she's carved out for herself in her, in her graduate studies that's the niche she's going to be hired in. And that's what she's going to be writing about for seven years. And, you know, a, a given student might be perfectly fine with that. And obviously we, we need people to do that sort of thing. Um, but if you like to research and write and publish, but you're not wild about sticking with this, you know, being limited to this one thing for the rest of your life. Um, the great thing about, publishing, if you do publish at a two-year college, is you can write about whatever you want. Uh, um, you know, you can, you can write about pop culture. I have, I have several friends who go to these pop culture academic conferences and they write and publish in that field. Um, you know, obviously I write and publish things having more to do with the, uh, what you might call the administrative side rather than uh, specifically in my field of composition. Uh, but but all of that has you know has redounded to my good over the years. I mean, I, I put that in my evaluation, and I've I've won awards and so forth. Even though I'm not, uh, you know, I, I'm not publishing research essays on Mark Twain in the you know American, uh, you know, the the Journal of American Literature or whatever, which is what I thought I would be doing when I when I started graduate school. Uh, but no offense to people who do that more power to them, but I'm glad I haven't spent my career doing that because I've, I've enjoyed what I do, I think, a whole lot more. You tell us in the article that some people who are on the committee interviewing us for the job will not have a PhD, uh, and we need to be mindful of that and not um, be condescending by accident. Um, but you also tell us that there's going to be a demo where we're supposed to treat the committee members like they're students, ask them questions, engage in discussion, call on them to answer. How do we navigate that if we have a PhD and they don't, and we're treating them like students, but we don't want to seem like we're talking down to them? What's the, what's the proper etiquette so we do that correctly and we show that we're enthusiastic and not rude? Oh, okay. Uh, you know, a, a fair question. Uh, to your first question, um, to this day, most community college faculty members do not have a PhD. Um, I don't have a PhD. Uh, we we went through a uh, a period about oh you know from roughly two thousand to maybe twenty ten or twenty twelve, and when I say we, I mean collectively. I, I, again, I think this is this was pretty typical across the country, where we were really setting out to hire PhDs. Um, part of that was to sort of raise our profile in higher education, but also there were just a lot of PhDs on the market. I mean, people couldn't get jobs. And so we found we could hire PhDs because they needed jobs. Um, what we discovered is that having a PhD doesn't necessarily make someone a better teacher. It, it doesn't make them a worse teacher but it doesn't necessarily automatically make them a best teacher. And what we're interested in is hiring the best teachers possible because that's what we do. A PhD is a research degree and that's, that's great. That's impressive, but we don't primarily do research. We, we do teaching. So we need the best teachers we can get. You know, when, when my school perimeter college merged with Georgia state, which is a, a research institution, 
one of the first things they said, one of the first things that came down the pike was, from now on, we want you, meaning Perimeter College, to hire only PhDs. And we just said, you know, okie doke. And we did. And um, some of the people we hired weren't great teachers. And that became apparent. And so about three or four years into this experiment, the upper administration came back to us and said, uh, you don't have to worry about that anymore. Just hire the best teachers you can find, whether they have a PhD or not. All of that said, it is on balance, I think, it is an advantage to have a PhD. All right. However, you still have to demonstrate that you're a good teacher. And one of the ways that you do that, as you mentioned, is in your teaching demonstration. And, and I, I do think we, as members of a committee, we recognize the difference during the, during the question and answer part. This, this goes back to the savior mentality that I mentioned before. Too many people come in with the idea that, well, I have a PhD and you know most of you rubes don't, so I know a lot more about it than you do. Well, you might know more about some very narrow academic field, but you, you don't know more about our college. You don't know more about our students. You probably don't know more about teaching than we do. So that, that's an attitude that, uh, that we don't really appreciate. And a lot of students do this inadvertently. Uh, they come in and they, they want to tell us all about their research agenda. And they, they want to spend the bulk of the interview, and we see this in their cover letters also, talking about their research agenda. Well, not, not to put too fine a point on it, but we, we kind of don't care. The fact that you have a PhD is great, but your research agenda doesn't, it, nine times out of 10 at least, it doesn't really apply to what we do. So that's not of very much interest to us. Um, and, and so that's, that's the part of the interview where, where the candidate has to be very careful not to step on toes, not to seem like they're you know, saying, I know a lot more than you do because I have a PhD and you don't. That's where they have to be careful. However, when we get to the, uh, the teaching demonstration part, we understand that we're changing roles. And, you know, we part of being a good teacher is not being condescending to your students. So treating people like students doesn't mean patronizing them, right? Uh, we certainly don't want to be patronized. But the, the main point that I'm trying to make when I say treat the people in the, in the room as if they're your students is we want to see you teach, okay? The mistake that candidates make is to treat that 15-minute that teaching demonstration as a presentation. They, they tend to treat it like a conference presentation. And so they try to show us what they would do in an hour and 15-minute class in the 15 minutes that they have, rather than simply getting up there and doing it. What they need to do is pick a 15-minute segment of a lecture that they're, and I, I use lecture in the broadest possible terms, of a, of, of a lesson that they're comfortable giving, something that they commonly teach that takes about 15 minutes, and then just get up there and teach it and incorporate whatever uh, you know, visual aids, the technology maybe that, that they might use. Ask questions and, and you know, uh, encourage responses from the people in the room. Um, you know, treat it like you're teaching a class. We want to see what do you look like when you're up there in front of the room? What are you doing? How are you responding to people? How are you treating people? What strategies do you use? That's what we want to see, as much of that as possible in, in the 15 minutes that we have. And I think you can certainly do that without, without you know, being arrogant or condescending. In fact, yeah, you know, that either of those would be disqualifying in, in that. If, if I went, if we, were, if we were considering a candidate and I, I went to where they currently teach and I snuck into the back of their classroom and watched them teach, if they came across to me as arrogant and condescending, I would go back and tell the committee, we don't want this person. That's really helpful. Do we do we ask permission to treat them like students? I'm just trying to, if we come in with a PhD and you all are pretty burned out on PhD behavior, we don't want to accidentally trip that 
uh, sore spot, um, do we ask, do we say, is it all right if for this presentation you will uh, be the students and I'll call on you? Do we, do we set up a permission system so that it's clear that we're not talking down? Um, no, I don't think that's necessary. You might state it up front. You might say, okay, now for the next 15 minutes, I'm the professor, you're the students, okay? And everybody in the room will be totally cool with that because that's what they expect. Um, you, you know, whether you, whether you have uh, a PhD or a master's degree or an EDD or whatever else, um, you're the expert. You're the, you're the subject matter expert and you're up there to teach. And we, we want to know that you have the subject matter expertise. Uh, simply having a PhD on your CV doesn't necessarily mean that you have subject matter expertise in the things that we want taught. So we need to see that, but we also need to see your, uh, your demeanor, um, your personality, um, just how you are as, as a teacher. Um, so I, I've never known a situation, how do I say this? So I do see the problem in the, in the question and answer portion of the interview. I, I do occasionally see people who are a little arrogant because they think their education is superior to ours. Um, it's a lot more common to see people who just don't understand the difference between interviewing at a two-year college and interviewing at a four-year college. And so they want to go on and on about their research agenda. And we're sitting there going, yeah, but you're going to be teaching five classes. Do you realize that? Do you even know where you are? So that could be a problem during the, the Q&A part. It, that sort of thing isn't, I've never seen it be a problem during the, uh, the teaching demonstration portion. The problem that arises there is people want to get up there and tell us what they would do rather than actually just doing it. Does that make sense to you? It does. And I really appreciate hearing the etiquette and the codes that we need to know. Um, and how to prepare and what's going to be asked because it is different. To me, it's sounding very similar to adjunct job interviews that I've had. Um, a, a, a lot of similarities, but this isn't for an adjunct job. This would be for a permanent job. And so there's more pressure the candidate is feeling and they may um, accidentally fall into the etiquette that they used for seven years yeah. um, of grad school. And it's, so it's important to hear um, what will serve us better and to shift into the new culture in a way that shows that we're there to interview for that job and we do want that job. We may just have to really shift into uh, the, the new culture of a community college um, in different ways than we're used to. And this gives us opportunities from what you're sharing to show that we're amenable to that and that we're purposeful about that. Yes, absolutely. And, and I don't, I don't think it's fundamentally different from, you know, other types of interviews there. There are probably plenty of people on the job market who are interviewing in higher ed, but are maybe also interviewing for jobs outside of higher ed. And, and you would not treat those two interviews the same. And if you did, um, you know, you probably wouldn't be successful in getting a job, uh, outside of higher ed, if you went in and treated it like, like it was a higher ed interview. And I, I think the same thing applies here. An interview at a two-year college is different from an interview at a four-year college. And, and that's why I started writing about this stuff 20 years ago, because people, people don't know this. And, and I wanted, I wanted to tell them both for their sake and for ours, because it, it makes it so much easier for us. Because I, I mean, I think sometimes we may miss out on some good people, just because they they didn't know, you know, the proper etiquette or the protocols, uh, what it is we're looking for, and so I, I figured I could help people and and help us out at the same time. Um, that's that's why I set out to do this, and ho hopefully it has it has helped some people. Uh, I I will say as a member of search committees, I think I think it did help us. I you know I had people come in and. Um, they were clearly following the things that I had suggested and it, it just really smoothed out the process. You know, the, the thing, I think we're getting close to the end of our time. So I'll just say that the thing that we most want to know is that you want to be there. 
we understand on some level, this might not be your dream job. This might not be what you plan to do. We might even be a fallback position for you. We're not stupid. We understand that. But you don't have to act like it's a fallback position. As much as you can do so without reeking of insincerity, we want you to demonstrate that you would actually that you actually want to be here, that you want to teach our students, that you want to be part of our culture, that it's something that you're interested in and, and you would love the opportunity to work with us. I mean, I think any employer in any in any field would say the same thing. It's 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 no different than if you're interviewing with accounting companies or or law firms or you know, whatever else it might be. Professor Rob Jenkins, thank you so much for being here today and giving us the inside look at the community college job application and interview process. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler. This is the Academic Life on New Books Network. I hope you will please join us again. 